Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I am joined by Terry Robinson, and tonight in another episode of Tomes of Magic, we are going to be discussing Axis Mundi, which is also called the Book of Spirits. Before we get into the details on that one, a few announcements. Uh, hey, before even the announcements, Terry, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty well. I've had an exciting couple of weeks. Have you ever done that thing where you had a whole bunch of stuff to do and then you, you tried to cram to get everything done before a vacation and you took the vacation and then you needed the vacation from the vacation and people are like, how are you doing? You're like, I'm so tired. And they're like, you just got back from vacation. How can you be tired? You're like, because I didn't stop running for the three and a half weeks before that. It is good to talk to you. It is centering. Like, But the fact that we talk about Mage roughly every two weeks about a book, it, it is a stabilizing force in my life, and I appreciate that. I appreciate it, too. I, I also quite enjoy these. Well, as we start looking at a few uh, announcements uh, before we open up, um, I've got two things in mind. I have been talking with uh, Forager on uh, the Discord channel for Mage the Podcast, and he has been doing some great work to uh, put extended roles into the Mage uh, Dice script. So uh, it is looking and working um, a lot better. I'm basically excited about uh, what we can offer to our uh, community of Mage fans. Uh, second is uh, I'm going to be attending a, a convention uh, in June uh, for, for other role players, and I wanted a way to kind of stand out and get uh, start conversations with other Mage fans. So I decided it's time to order two uh, great-looking Mage T-shirts, and so I went to redbubble.com, and it occurred to me, I don't think we've discussed that on the show. And they've got an Onyx Path section there where you can get uh, great uh, t-shirts and, and other related items for uh, classic World of Darkness games. So um, they've got a, a large selection of mage t-shirts. And as a mage fan, I'm, I'm going to enjoy ordering two of those and uh, wearing those at the convention so that other mage fans can walk up and say, do you like mage? I got a bunch of those in advance of Gen Con, but the critical mistake I made is I am always wearing a button-down shirt. Like, I consider a polo be beneath my dignity. Like, as a large person, they just look terrible on me. I look like I'm wearing a massive three-button bib. Uh, so I refused to not wear a button-down shirt beneath it. So it was Gen Con last year. It was 94 degrees. I'm wearing my base layer. I'm wearing a button-down, and then I'm wearing a mage shirt on top of that, and I'm sweating. And I'm like, I like mage, everyone. My name's Terry from Mage the Podcast. <laughs> And my goal was to have things to put on the back to like silkscreen using a vinyl cutter I have. And the three ideas I had for Mage, the podcast t-shirts were one, working hard towards Ascension so you don't have to. And someone in the Discord pointed out that is the most technocratic thing they ever heard. And I'll be <laughs> darned if they're not right. The, the second option for a shirt I was thinking of for Mage, the podcast was like an Oracle, but much less useful. And I think that that kind of fits us. We, we know a lot, but it's not actually that important or helpful. And the final one was Mage the Podcast. I don't think you're using the right spheres for that rote, which I think summarizes the experience of almost anyone who's ever had a discussion about the mechanics of Mage. So if we ever open our own Redbubble store, that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to push out. And I'm jazzed to see this. Uh, community note-wise for me, uh, a couple of things. Friend of the show, Charles Siegel, is running a Discord-based text game called Fortune Rising, which is set in New York City. For information on that, go to our Discord server, discord.me slash the podcast. Contact Charles there. 
He's still recruiting for players. Uh, additionally, I am going to be running Mage the Ascension games at Gen Con and 1D4Con. I will include information in the show notes once I have official information on that. It will be a module from my hopefully upcoming setting book and storybook for Mage the Ascension set in Philadelphia. Don't have a name for it yet. And finally, our good World of Darkness friends, Midnight Express, uh, BK the host there, has started publishing regular episodes again. So if you haven't heard that, uh, it is a wonderful love letter to the World of Darkness. It covers all the games and associated ones. Uh, I've been on it. Several friends of the show have also been on it. And it's just great to have more Old World of Darkness material for your listening pleasure. So if you're curious, Midnight Express. Okay, well, tonight, uh, in Tomes of Magic, we were talking about Axis Mundi, which uh, has uh, like a secondary title, The Book of Spirits. And when you see The Book of Something, then mage fans get excited because they figure, this is probably for me. And so this book has what you might call a double billing. If you turn it over on the back, you'll see a logo for Werewolf the Apocalypse, and right under that, you'll see the logo for Mage the Ascension. So this is a book that uh, White Wolf recommended for both games. However, when you look at the uh, the, the title and the uh, typeface inside and the border art around the borders of the pages, it packaged as a Werewolf the Apocalypse book. And it, it really comes across that uh, they were they had their mindset more on uh, Werewolf than on Mage. This is uh, from 1996, so we're, we're stepping back a year from the last book we did. But now this book was put together by 12 different authors. I'm not going to list every one, but it was developed by Ethan Skemp. And what one thing that I wanted to bring up is, even though Terry and I both found a lot of great material here, and we, we definitely enjoy the book and uh, recommend it to Mage fans, we do have a bit of criticism. Even though this is billed and titled as a mage and werewolf book, after reading this book, I got a undeniable impression that this was a book that was conceived and written for a werewolf. And after it was written, they said, oh, hey, this might be useful to mage players too. We're not going to update the text. We're not going to add any new text. Uh, we're just going to put the mage label on the back and say, mage players, you might want to check this one out. And so there is... As you read through every part of the book, um, mages are mentioned a few times briefly in passing, but werewolves are talked about on you know every every column of every page. But don't let me spoil the book for you. I'm glad I read the book, and I think uh, it's got a lot to offer mage fans. Yeah, my flippant way of putting that is if every book had a sticky note on it that said, also for mage fans, that like Richard Thomas had done in Sharpie, I felt like that would have been more honest. (laughs) (laughs) Or if like they had written, and mages, like periodically in like... In ballpoint pen. Uh, one of the big things that, that Adam and I celebrate is that Mage is such a big, beautiful game, and you can draw inspiration from all sorts of places. And this book is an amazing example of even if it wasn't built for Mage, even if it says it is, even if it wasn't built for Mage, there's still a lot of useful things we can get from the other World of Darkness books. One of my other proposals was that we should call this episode Tomes of Magic, because it's not necessarily like a Mage of the Ascension book. But again, I found a lot of useful stuff once I got over the first the narrative in the first two chapters and and we're i think we're gonna have a lot of fun with it as werewolf player characters gain experience they want to spend that to gain werewolf powers now uh werewolf powers are called gifts and they're sort of like basically spiritual powers that were creatures can learn and use 
and non-wear creatures just cannot learn them. Not even available to them. In each game, there are different powers. The the vampire, the masquerade, the vampires have um, powers that only vampires can do because of their magical blood, and they're called disciplines. Mages, you know, just can't learn them. It's not an option. And of course, in Mage the Ascension, the mage powers are the nine spheres that mages can learn and use. So, where creatures learn gifts from other spirits, from uh, Middle Umbra spirits. And so there was uh, constant notes in the first two editions of werewolf books uh, saying, hey, storytellers and players, we would like uh, learning gifts to be more than just spending experience and, and writing something on the character sheet after you spend the experience. We would like you to make your games richer by role-playing out uh, the player character going to find a spirit and working out in a relationship with that spirit and saying, okay, now that we have a relationship, would you teach me this gift? And so after so many times saying they want that to be a part of the game, finally the developers and the, the developer and the writers looked at each other and said, well, if we've been thumping this for so long, it's probably time we put out a book that helps people do that. And that was really the focus in the majority of this book, where for each spirit uh, that is in the middle umber that they list in this book, they not only say what the spirit looks like, what it you know generally does and who it's against and who it's uh, allied with, but it also has specific headings of, of paragraphs saying, this is how a werewolf would start a relationship with it. This is how a werewolf would get on its good side to start the relationship. These are the gifts that they can teach a werewolf, and these are the things that a werewolf would probably be expected to do for the spirit. And this brings us into a game term called a kiminage. Kiminage is when a were creature approaches a middle umbra spirit and says, I want to start a relationship with you. I want us to become allies so that I will do things for you and you will do things for me. We will watch each other's back. And this is something that the elder were creatures uh, strongly emphasize to the younger were creatures. They say this is has always been a part of our society. This is something we want you to do. Uh, we want you to learn your gifts, your werewolf powers, not from other werewolves, but from the spirits, because this strengthens the community bonds that have existed since you know the very beginning of time. And and along that lines, it provides a nice little chart which says if this is the effect you want, this is probably what you should bring to the table, which is super useful because one of the problems that we run into in Mage is we don't really have really good systems, at least at this point in the game, to say, well, my character has spirit too, and I want to ask a spirit to do this thing. What's the appropriate thing to offer in exchange? And this book has a little chart of, depending on what you want the spirit to do, what might be an appropriate exchange. Another thing that is uh, seen a lot in this book is uh, the different titles or ranks of spirits, which are named a bit differently in the game Werewolf the Apocalypse. Uh, now, Terry, I believe you have a, a few things to say about that. In Mage, we have terms and titles for a bunch of different spirits and spirit entities. And these specifically, in this case, refer to middle umber spirits. Sometimes high umber spirits also use these titles. But later in Revised, we get the Bolton Mikado hierarchy, which uses terms like uh, bishop and knight and prelate and so on. So that's, that's a bit down the road. But at the highest end, you have the Celestines. It's so named because generally these are spirits of scale. So Luna and Helios are probably the two best known Celestines, and they are very powerful. They are well beyond getting statistics, and their domain is very specific, and they are nigh on omnipotent 
in it. The only thing that is that is theoretically more potent than a Celestine would be Gaia and maybe the, the triad spirit. The worm itself, the weaver itself, and the wild itself are, are all Celestine powers on the high end. Below that, you have Incarnas. And Incarnas are not as specifically bound, and Incarna can still move around. They are still more or less beyond statistics for anything but the, the, the largest and most potent of groups. And if you're going to take down an Incarna, there's a lot of planning that's involved. And probably the best known Incarnas in this game are going to be the Totem Spirits. And that's going to be Falcon and Stag and Pegasus and Chimera. And we'll go into those more later. When you have a Totem Spirit, a Totem Spirit has a brood. Now, the Totem Spirits were formed initially to band together for protection when the weaver encased the worm, the worm went nuts, the gauntlet rose, and the worm started coursing through creation, kind of destroying everything. And sometimes they were incarnate, and sometimes they were what were called jagglings. And jagglings represent slightly less potent spirits, and maybe things like, it might be, for instance, the spirit of pigeon. Now, the, the spirit of pigeon, there are two manifestations of it. One is the Ur spirit that, that is kind of pigeon, and it is the pigeon incarnate, and that may be a weak incarnate or a strong jaggling. Now, that may have individual manifestations in the form of individual pigeon spirits, and those individual spirits that are kind of representatives or work on behalf of a jaggling are gafflings. And so a, a totem spirit, which is generally going to be an incarna, will have very strong other jagglings or incarna kind of servicing it, but the individual manifestations of it, the little individual spirits that go out into the wild or that interact with characters in general are going to just be gafflings. In addition to that, we get a bunch of other terms. Uh, we also get piflings, which are the spirits of concepts. You could encounter the epiffling of love or anger or rage. In addition to that, there are a few other spirit types that they mention. One are cairn spirits. They are not free-floating spirits and they are tied to a cairn or what a mage would call a node. Uh, they protect it and they kind of act in its defense. They also make mention to other entities like anime, which are personal spirits, which are tied to a particular garu. And then in addition to that, we get ancestor spirits, which are may or may not be the actual dead entity or maybe the emotional representation of it. Just to give you the idea of, of what we're going to what we're going to hone in on. Um, we're not going to do a, th a thorough walkthrough of this book because most of the book is a listing of middle umbra spirits. And so uh, there is a prelude uh, fiction, which really is just concerned with, with werewolf matters. It, it, I don't think it's terribly helpful for, for mage storytellers or players. Uh, chapter one talks about uh, the history of uh, Middle Umber Spirits, but it's told from a very werewolf point of view. And again, I, I think it really is not so helpful for, for mage fans. Uh, chapter two is titled The Pact, and this is an example of older werewolves talking to younger werewolves, telling them about how Kimmenage got started, why uh, there are these relationships between middle umbra spirits and were creatures, and this just applies totally to werewolf the apocalypse. And so after these, we get to chapters three, four, and five, which are listings of different spirits, and then there's an appendix which just has some spirit charms, and, and that is all. There are a few little interesting dribs and drabs in chapter two, and this is also one of those things that kind of makes me raise an eyebrow. The book immediately before this we talked about was the Dream Speaker Tradition book, where the sentence, 
dream speakers can't have totem spirits is specifically said. And then this book in chapter two is like any awakened being, whether it be a Garu, a mage or a changeling can be a member of a pack and can gain the benefits of a totem spirit. And to prove that this is a mage book, there were a whole bunch of mentions of changeling. So I'm just (laughs) just bringing that (laughs) up again. And a few other little notes was one, we get a interesting story of the creation of the world where uh, everything was initially dynamic and Gaia creates stasis so that Gaia can rest. And that's kind of an interesting story. If a character wants an explanation of where stasis came from, if you have a, a, a naturalistic or shamanic character who wants a worldview chapter two has it it talks about how spirits spend most of their time sleeping and i guess the the final thing that i thought was interesting was that werewolves recognize that humans have the power of naming and with the power of naming comes the ability to define reality and they specifically say that when garu use their gifts they are not engaging in the act of naming they are using the power that has been loaned to them from a spirit and they say that the human power of naming may be something on loan from spider, which kind of suggests that maybe even though it mages use dynamic magic in the eyes of the Garou, it is still an agent of the weaver. And I I wouldn't consider any of this mage canon, but I think it's good fodder for in-game if your characters encounter a werewolf and they're like, oh, you're agents of the weaver. And you're like, what do you mean? We're not technocrats. You use the power of naming, which was given to you by Anansi the spider during the first age. And they're like, I have no idea literally what any of those words mean, but you're nine feet tall and can tear me in half. So I'm going to nod appreciatively and back my ass out of this place. So (laughs) it gives you material there, but it was almost worse than if mage weren't included because it gave us stuff that directly contradicted other stuff we had, which is kind of par for world of darkness. So when I was reading through the the section talking about um, uh, changelings and mages getting benefits of of where creature totem spirits, I, I, I just read that with the impression that this is going to be a crossover game that focuses on werewolf and has more werewolf player characters, but they bring in one or two changeling player characters or one or two mage player characters. And and, and I can understand that point of view. When, when I'm running a crossover, uh, just the way I think is, is I will take one of the World of Darkness games and I will say, okay, this is the game I'm focusing on and I will allow other player character types to, to come into that world, but I'm focusing on this world. So if I was focusing on werewolf, and I had a dream speaker running with a, uh, a guru pack, you know, werewolf pack. I would, I would basically say, uh, yeah, whatever, let him get the totem benefits. So why not? But if I was running a mage game, then yeah, I would say, look, uh, dream speaker connections with totem spirits are different from where creature connections with totem spirits. And if you don't do that, it kind of leads to some ridiculous spaces like Pegasus is a totem of purity and you've got the Garu and their kinfolk and maybe some other shapeshifters who are helping this raid on this uh, tainted cairn. They're taking down some black spiral dancers and it's like, oh, we've all been blessed by Pegasus, all of the humans, all of the Garus. Except for Larry. Larry's a mage, and he's boned. He's going to have to deal with it himself. So good luck with that. Yeah, Larry, stand in the back and don't get any energy. <laughs> yeah. Tuck your pants into your socks. That's going to be the best <laughs> advice that we have for you. Wear a raincoat or something like that. So, Yeah, that's, what, that's one way to do it. It's not the yeah. only way to do it. I've talked to a lot of people who are equal crossovers. They emphasize all five games equally at the same time. And I admire those people. They are talented people. I'm not quite that talented. Chapter three is, uh, by page count, half of the book, and uh, it is titled Lords of the Quarters, and uh, what that basically means is 
uh, talking about the totem spirits, the four quarters of the globe. The totem spirits are supposed to be the generals in Gaia's forces, basically. Gaia, of course, is the high-level Celestine, or perhaps even above the level of Celestines. Gaia is planet Earth, or Mother Earth, or uh, the natural world that exists on Earth, uh, that that sort of concept. And so, the were creatures believe that uh, before recorded time, Gaia appointed uh, high-level spirits and called them totems, and totem spirits uh, have a close and personal relationship with were creatures who are supposed to be uh, officially recognized as half uh, physical and half spirit creatures that serve Gaia. The Guru, the werewolves, believe that they are the soldiers of Gaia. All, all the different, uh, you know, let's see, Macaulay, the, the were alligators and crocodiles and, and sometimes lizards, they're the memory of Gaia and, and so on. All the different were creatures believe they have a specific overall role. The totem spirits are supposed to give counsel and aid to were creatures, uh, give them guidance, uh, help them connect with other uh, middle umber spirits, and help them stay on the correct path for Gaia. And in return, the were creatures are supposed to uh, revere, honor, respect the totem spirits, uh, listen to their messages, uh, take serious the requests that they make. And so, in Chapter 3, we get a lot of different totem spirits, and it does not give details on the totem spirits themselves. It's, it tells you their names, but it talks about their broods, the spirits that are associated with the totems. I wanted to mention that uh, storytellers uh, can use all of the spirits in this chapter as independent spirits if they so choose. Uh, every spirit is only listed as belonging to the brood of one specific totem spirit, and it talks about how it's it's very well connected with it. But a mage storyteller could simply take a spirit and say, well, I, I like this spirit. I'm not going to worry about the brood, the, the larger uh, connections to the totem spirit. I just want to use this as, as a separate thing. So as we go through each of these uh, three chapters on spirits, one thing that I thought would be fun is to take one spirit – that uh, we either really liked or that we thought fit well with Mage as written. And then also take another spirit that uh, looks like it's really tailored towards were creatures, but adapt it. So maybe I could change something and, and, and use it in Mage, even though it's, it's not a natural fit. What is your uh, natural fit spirit from chapter three? We are Mage, so I'm going to cheat and just say that this chapter had a bunch of really interesting entities in it. The first one that I saw that I liked was Gremlins. And gremlins are part of Cockroach's brood, and Cockroach is the totem spirit of the Glass Walkers. He is a totem of survival, and it talks about how after the gauntlet rose, Cockroach realized the threat humanity posed and created a group of jagglings called the Spider Wasps to destroy what they called the machine, like the representation of all human artifice. One, I love the idea of there being this entity called the machine. And then later, the jagglings, the spider wasps, started creating these gafflings, these smaller spirits called gremlins. And these were these green polymorphic spirits that made their home in small open spaces within machinery. That during World War II, the tool-bearing gremlins specialized in the destruction of aircraft. They would destroy ships. 
and they lurk between the domains of the wild and the weaver. And I really like the idea of spirits that bridge one area to another and their correspondences with destruction. And they talk about the rituals you can use to keep them at bay by ceremonially cleaning and lubricating everything, which I like the idea of a technocrat having to deal with the gremlin by using procedures of just making sure all the equipments are maintained, but the gremlin sees these as purification rites, where the technocrat sees these as the most mundane things humanly possible. I also like the fact that the gremlins have their own culture, that after a particularly successful raid on the machine, they retreat to their umbral realms and they tell stories of all the shit they broke. And I <laughs> I just picture a, a hollower or a techno uh, dream speaker or even a particularly destructive Sons of Ether member like bearing witness to it and participating on one of their raids. And it's just one of those interesting things where we can take very traditional presentations of spirits and everyone in Mage can get in on that fun. Or a character is trying to do a technocratic raid and they gain the power of the gremlins and then it goes too far and it starts wrecking their own stuff and they're like, oh man, maybe the, the maybe the wild is more than I want to deal with. And I always like stories of characters getting in over their head, but not in a case where like everyone dies. And I thought the, the gremlins were a great way to do that. Uh, well, as I was reading through chapter three, I saw two groups of spirits that seemed um, very very similar. First off, the children of Karnak uh, are an ancient uh, people that live in the Umbra. They're associated with uh, Helios, that is the Celestine of the Sun that we read about in the Book of Worlds. It exists high up in the Aetherian reaches. The children of Karnak can take the form of falcons and also rock. That's R-O-C as in a, a large, immense a majestic uh, bird of prey. Think, think of like a giant eagle. They also appear in human form with very elegant traditional uh, clothes. Uh, they guard an ancient hidden temple to Helios and use an ancient kind of technology, the, these ancient sort of machines. It, it even mentions in a sidebar that uh, there's a possibility that the Society of Ether Mages would discover these machines and just be fascinated by them and, and see them as being not really human technology, but something not so distant from the sorts of things that the, the Etherites work with. I like this idea of the descendants of a people group that um, is not in recorded history, but they're so old that they existed before the gauntlet came up separating the worlds of uh, spirit and, and the physical world. And the possibilities of, of learning from them, of making allies with them, and also this, this cool kind of technology which could suggest to mages that the recorded history that they have learned growing up, uh, th there's whole large chapters that were just cut right out of that by possibly the technocracy or others. Now, also, the, the second group of spirits that is, is um, also associated with Helios, the, the sun Celestine, are called firebirds. And they appear either as uh, very beautiful and majestic Earth-like birds, like, like falcons. Also, they can appear as these, these flaming, glowing bird spirits. And they're always uh, very beautiful, very eye-catching. They live in these strange fractal structures in the middle umbra called menger sponges with complex doors within doors that are a puzzle to understand and puzzle to use. And it, it talks about them having um, a, a very, very uh, ancient sort of spirit technology where they have these uh, webs of light where they store 
very old information about the early days of the Middle Umbra and and the Earth before recorded history, and that uh, these these firebirds have a, a very they take their job very seriously of maintaining their light webs of uh, ancient umbral information. And so I thought. Wow, it would be so cool to have you know, any sort of a mage uh, come across these firebirds and these cool, complex sorts of dwellings they have called menger sponges and try to, you know, work out the puzzle of, of getting through one of those doors and then uh, the possibility of all the things they could learn from this light web. I thought, you know, wow, there's, it just suggests so much to me as a storyteller. The Menger sponge is a interesting recursive object that has infinite surface area and zero volume. You start with a cube and you remove a block representing the middle third from each edge. So you have a you have a square, you take the middle third from the top, the, the right, the left, and the bottom, and now you're left with five kind of bricks. And then for each one of those bricks, you repeat this process where for the brick in the top left corner, you start removing bits and bits and bits. And you do this recursively, and it creates this object that, if you keep going, has infinite surface area, but zero volume. And I thought this was a nice, awesome idea for two reasons. One, this is one of the few denizens we get of an anchorhead, an entity that guards a portal between the near and the deep umbra. And I think this would be a, an amazing set piece for a group that has made this trip out to the, the far horizon, and they're like, oh man, look at this kind of as a we're in for something big where they see these massive uh, glowing information hoarding entities living inside of an impossible structure that demands a sacrifice of knowledge before you can free yourself into the deep universe. And I also like the idea of there being uh, information spirits that virtual adepts could maybe come in contact with. When we read the Digital Web book, you have the idea of the Sphinx, this entity that has made its way onto the Digital Web and no one is quite sure how. And I like the idea of maybe the Firebirds being another one of those. Well, what about a spirit that uh, you adapted for Mage out of Chapter 3? I think an underused element in Mage in general is the Hobgoblin, an entity that is a sign that you have gone into quiet, that follows you around, that others may or may not be able to see, that is a persistent reminder that as a Mage, you have tinkered with reality to the point where maybe it's taking its toll on you. And one of the creatures introduced is the chimera and a chimera will appear and follow around a particular werewolf and the appearance of the chimera will give you information about the state of that werewolf that it is a mix of three things the noble lion the carnal goat and the lie spewing dragon. So I like the idea of a character who maybe has done something shady and as an alternative to getting dots and resonance or jor or something like that, suddenly this chimera appears and is following the player around. And this is a shaggy ass looking chimera. So the player's like, what is this thing following me around? And then they discover that this thing is a reflection kind of maybe of their avatar or their ethical choices that they've made. And the the player needs to do some work to get this chimera looking normal again. And maybe if they don't deal with it, other people start noticing it. And you kind of have this walking giveaway that this character has done something shady or has gone out of alignment with what their beliefs are. A slightly different version of this is that the chimera takes on the form to reflect the person it's talking to. And by doing that, you would be able to discern if an ally were genuine. So like, oh, okay, you, you say you're here to help us. Let's talk to my friend, the Chimera first. And they go before the Chimera and the dragon head grows in size and the lion starts withering and the goat starts bleeding. And suddenly the group knows that this person who's 
apparently there to help them may not be all they're cracked up to be. What did you want to bring in with a little bit of modification? Uh, well, I was um, interested in the rat gafflings. There is a section for the uh, totem spirit associated with the Bonar tribe of werewolves. And uh, yeah, ju- just to be brief, the Bonar tribe is a, a whole tribe of werewolves that are like the underdogs. Uh, they have taken to uh, living lives of uh, poverty in, in cities in uh, developed countries. And uh, other werewolves kind of other werewolf tribes uh, tend to look down on them, although they're, they're still part of the uh, werewolf nation. In this section for the Bonars totem, uh, there are basically rat spirits. They are not actual rats. Uh, they are rat spirits and they serve a, a larger rat spirit. And they are found in cities. They, uh, it, t- it goes into detail about how they can have special relationships with individual Bonar werewolves. And when I looked at this, I thought, okay, now this is a neat idea, but I would make some changes here. I would say that mages who spend some time in the middle Umbra in cities would become aware of these rat gafflings, these lesser rat spirits. And uh, they are in in packs or swarms. They're they're found in groups, not usually individually. And so a mage could attune to the rat gafflings to sort of understand them better. Then after doing that, the mage could then find them in different parts of the city or perhaps uh, use some lesser uh, spirit magic to make the rat gafflings move from place to place throughout the city and then use them as a sort of indicator. Observe their reactions, see where they get more excited or more angry or more panicky and, and use them as a kind of sensory system to learn things about the different parts of the city that the mage could not find out on their own. And it's interesting because it broke up. Uh, these are the the rat gafflings that you encounter outside of buildings. These are the rat gafflings you encounter on the inside, on the on the middle floors and the high floors. And you've got your your rat early warning system, as it were. The one thing I didn't get is they kept saying that rat was a totem of war. And I'm like, you're going to have to explain that one to me. And and then later it's like, oh, yeah, everyone knows Rat is a totem of war. I'm like, keep, okay, keep going, keep going. Maybe maybe not all of us know that. So I assume I have to read the, the, the werewolf core book to explain why, like, Rat is this rage war totem. And one of the interesting things that comes up in the book is the associations that we in the West have with an animal isn't necessarily what it's going to be in werewolf. Sometimes there's a different cultural tie that is used to explain what a creature is. Like they go through how the narwhal had a unique relationship with the unicorn. And for each of these, they they go through a process of saying where you can find it, what its spiritual correspondences are, like the things that you can do emotionally or idea-wise to summon the darn thing, the materials that you may want to have involved, the things the spirit cannot do or the things that things serving that spirit cannot do, which I thought was interesting because I like the idea of a character who's made, who is very powerful and has made a lot of agreements with a lot of spirits that can call on them, but has this very complicated web of taboos that they have to observe. Like, oh, they they can't kill bugs indoors, but once a week they have to feed a bird to a cat and also sing during thunderstorms, but can only bathe in river water and so on. So it kind of builds up this idea that you could have this complex web of bans and restrictions and requirements that a character has to do to maintain good terms on all the things. 
I was also noticing that as we read through the book, I, I thought that could be very interesting to contrast a dream speaker mage with a hermetic mage, because the hermetics have not only very carefully kept records of spirits throughout the three layers of the umbra, but they also have established uh, agreements with spirits and groups of spirits. You know, hermetics, of course, deal with spirits quite differently from how dream speakers deal with spirits. And so you could have um, a couple of, of uh, scenes in in the game where the dream speaker could say, ah, you hermetics, you order spirits around, but you don't have a close relationship with it. And so look at all these advantages and, and great things I get that you don't get. But then you come to uh, another scene where you get into all of these requirements and obligations that the dream speaker has to do and, and, and taboos and, and gaieses and things that the dream speaker just can't do. Or, you know, they have to do something that trips them up and the hermetics like, man, what's your problem? I'm just going to go do to do and nothing's going to hold me back. And vice versa, how the hermetic would be completely out of their element when dealing with a spirit that they had no agreement with, or dealing with a spirit that was more clever than them, that did the word of what the hermetic requested, but maybe yeah. not quite the spirit. So it's definitely one you can play both ways, depending on what you want to get across. Yeah, and the dream speaker says to the spirit, well, I know your buddy, so you're going to treat me right. And the spirit's like, eh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to treat you right. <laughs> <laughs> well, chapter four uh, deals with um, the category of spirits called uh, nature, or, or you could say nature spirits. These are spirits of plants, uh, trees, bushes, vines, etc. Also spirits of rocks and stones, moon spirits, and uh, uh, things of that nature. What was interesting when reading through this chapter is it said more than once that nature have a hard time dealing with were-creatures, because were-creatures have uh, rage within them, which is like this in intense anger and intense power and you know energy pushing them towards action, towards towards combat, towards uh, physically and immediately resolving problems. A lot of the stone and plant and other nature spirits are repelled by this or frightened by it. And so they have a harder time dealing with it. And so even though it didn't say it during the chapter, as I was reading through this, I thought, well, humans, regular humans with noumena and mages actually are going to have an easier time dealing with nature than a lot of were creatures. So uh, it seems like it should have been called out. But but anyways, it, it's nice to, to see that. So here's a grouping of spirits that mages have a little more ease dealing with, uh, perhaps, than were-creatures. And also, it's said that um, a lot of these creatures, especially the stone and rock spirits, have a different relationship with time, which I guess makes sense. And so a lot of uh, were-creatures are going to have a hard time dealing with them because they will talk and think slow, not stupid, but requiring more time for a conversation. And so I thought, now here's a place where low levels in the time sphere could be a really great advantage. I'd like to, to find uh, the, you know handy uses for, for lower levels of the time sphere because excellent inner clock is only so exciting. I think it gives you a good crossover opportunity where you want to have the were werewolf be the, the human wrecking ball, as it were, that your group calls on when they really need to do some heavy lifting. This is some great example of, yeah, uh, we need to talk to this tree, but we're all too angry. Can you do this? Or alternatively, there's this rock that's really angry at us, and it's literally been screaming at us for 200 years, but we don't know what it's saying. 
Uh, no one's that patient to listen to it. Can you look into that? That's a great avenue for it. And it makes me wonder if in Mage there would be entities that would be afraid of mages with very high avatar ratings or very high arete. And I think that could be a an interesting entity classification that I just brought up and have no idea how I would actually use it. Yeah, it's a good idea, but uh, yeah, it would uh, take a little more uh, treatment to, to bring yeah. that into a game. Well, what is what is your good fit uh, spirit from Chapter 4, Nature A? This one had a lot that were good examples of how you could lightly change things. But for the one that I would just pick up and drop in, I chose ayahuasca, which is the plant spirit of a psychogenic plant. And it does two things. One, it kind of grants prophetic vision. But the other thing it mentions is that people who make an agreement with this entity or have consumed its its gnosis have an easier time passing through the jungle. That even though you've been tripping balls for a day and a half, once that passes, you're able to move through the jungle easily. And I like the idea of maybe very straight-laced characters having to do a psychogenic drug because they have to go through some area of the middle umbra where otherwise they're going to have to hack and slash their way through and that's going to take a super long period of time uh, but if you go on the spiritual journey maybe these stuck up stuffy hermetics and, and sons of ether are suddenly going to find it easier going these people then also specifically have a, a ban against doing damage to the forest it also fits in well with the dream speakers like an idea that okay well my character's always tripping may as well deal with a totem spirit that kind of kind of rewards that also it's an introduction to the balam who are the were jaguar who i just kind of like some of the weirder pharah i think are are pretty cool so that was the one i thought i could just drop into mage my uh, good fit spirit in uh, chapter four uh, was the moon spirit called the harvester and this is a middle umbra spirit that grew out of the relationship with regular humans and the earth as they were doing agriculture, as they were farming. Um, and the harvester, of course, is uh, tied to the harvest event in, I guess you could say, late summer or somewhere in fall. And then there are certain rituals that take place after that where the, the plants are taken care of. Um, certain animals come and they, they take the, the, the leavings. And uh, the poor in the community are, are sometimes uh, given some or, or allowed to go through the fields and take you know whatever may be left. And so the, the harvester spirit, it, it seems like it has more of a connection to humanity than it does to were creatures. And so I, I looked at this and I thought, this is uh, one of the few places I see in the middle umbra where it's a really good fit for the verbena tradition from the Council of Nine. I think the verbena would be the tradition that would have the best knowledge or closest relationship with this kind of a spirit. And this spirit, of course, would have a lot of deep knowledge about humanity's past also about uh, the weather or any phenomena or disturbances that would relate to weather. I think the harvester would be an, an amazingly a good resource there. And so um, I, I just saw that as like, as written, this would just be a, a very good fit. And an awesome bonus, it communicates to garrows and humans by leaving messages in the form of crop circles. Okay, yeah, this this was written. <laughs> you in the buried mid the lead. <laughs> yeah, there was that craze in the United States about the crop circles. Where do they come from? They're so mysterious. Oh my gosh, is it UFOs? Yeah, back in the mid nineties, there were a lot of people talking about that, and 
So they, they dropped it into the book here. <laughs> and I like the idea because that also gives you an avenue for like a progenitor who still has some sort of folk belief or community tie to be dealing with an umbral entity where they're trying to work on a on a new type of, uh, of corn that is particularly productive or something. And no one knows that the reason that this is working is because they have an agreement with the harvester. And using void engineered dimensional science, they actually think that they're in treating with super advanced organism. And it turns out it's also... It's actually a member of Luna's court. You, got, you get a bunch of weird little things. And also importantly is the entry immediately before this, the green cheese elemental, which oh, I thought was... Vitally important. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the great green cheese spirit, uh, who is an enemy of all people who take themselves too seriously. And I just love that as a totem for a group of, uh, of more hippie-ish characters or like, hey, we need to do this technocratic raid on the iterators. How are we going to take them down? Which spirit is appropriate? And someone's like, guys, it's time to call in a favor from the great green cheese spirit. But it's it's super neat because it's one of those things where the broods are, are I don't want to say arbitrary, but when we got to the, the nature spirits, it's neat to see all these spirits being different incarnations of what different cultures see when they look at the moon. And in some cases, it's a seasonal guide like the harvester. In other cases, it's raw imagination. In other cases, it's it's war because it allows you to fight during night. In other cases, it's Selene or Tethys or falling stars. And I really liked the, there's this one thing, here's all the cultural associations to it and all the different manifestations that Luna has. As for an entity that I thought you could drop into Mage with a little bit modification, and this may be a weird choice, but uh, limestone. They go over a whole bunch of different rock and mineral spirits like quartz and jade. And the one I liked was limestone because one of the requirements to be a servant of limestone is you can't destroy limestone. And I think when they wrote it, they were probably thinking of like limestone caverns. And the idea here is it has a lot of lore about water, a lot of lore about the earth and time and allows you to move between limestone areas. But when I think limestone, I think of slaked lime, which is a vital ingredient for cement. And when I think cement, I think concrete. So I picture a character who has made an agreement with limestone spirits to protect maybe a large urban area, that these are the spirits of maybe the concrete in a large brutalist building, and that the character can have this limestone spirit defend them, but they have to defend the limestone. So basically it's a chronicle where to keep the chiminage of this entity, they have to keep all the graffiti off. Or suddenly they they make this agreement and they don't realize that limestone is found in concrete and cement. And suddenly they realize they have this massive task that they have to do. And I think it's a really interesting way of taking a traditional spirit and updating it because humans have a new thing that they do with it. A um, new relationship yeah. with it. Yeah. And interestingly, the one immediately after this is serpentine, which is a, a rock type. And the thing that gets me about this is I know serpentine, like the best known serpentine stone, I think at this point has to be asbestos. So I think there's an amazing angle of what's it like being an asbestos elemental? Like you being you kills humans. Does that mean you're automatically a bane? Like how does the world of darkness deal with entities where them expressing themselves is hazardous to the outside world and it's not them necessarily being evil. But yeah, I, th I thought that would be an interesting case of a particularly modern elemental uh, that, that is maybe on the run because we've removed asbestos from so many stuff but yeah the stone spirits and it's tied to the urban environment in the form of concrete 
They had uh, elementals uh, later in this chapter, like uh, water, earth, fire, and they also had plastic and, and newer ones. And they were quite interesting. But uh, for my choice for a spirit to adapt from this chapter, I looked back uh, towards the beginning of the chapter, the uh, stone and rock spirits. And one is called uh, basalt. Of course, is a, a stone more closely associated with volcano and volcanic activity. And uh, there's there's a big write up there about how the the basalt stone spirit has a special relationship with Gaia, and there are certain things that where creatures can do to call upon it or learn from it. But what I thought would be really interesting here is for the mage who did their homework and uh, invested some time in learning how to communicate with a basalt spirit. Uh, there could be a, a lot of benefits there. I mean, this this is um, this would be an immense. Uh, a deep down in the bowels of the earth kind of a spirit. And so it would have, I, I imagine, like a, a vague sort of memory reaching back to the very beginnings of, uh, of planet Earth, even before there was life on Earth, and the, the interesting sorts of things that a mage could learn from a spirit like this. And also, um, it's, it's interesting to play with the possibilities of uh, geomancy. And of course, there's Western and, and Eastern, East Asian geomancy are a little different from each other, but the underlying principle is the same, and that is that understanding how natural energy moves through a geographic area can give you power over that, and how putting things in a certain place, like put it next to the hill instead of next to the river, or uh, changing the course of a river, or changing the elevation of, of certain places can, can give you power over an area, or let you draw energy from an area. The best way to really get an intimate knowledge of, say, like an entire valley would be to communicate with the basalt spirits existing deep down under it and say, okay, now long ago, how is the energy flowing through here? And uh, if I were to block this up, what might that reveal to me? You could even use it as a way to find hidden layers like uh, like a Nefondi labyrinth or something that has some connection somewhere in this valley. I mean, just the scene, you could have some immense, powerful spirit that is so large that it's hard for it to even notice an individual. And then once you get a conversation going, it talks in such immense vague terms that the mage has to work towards driving towards useful information but the useful information is there and yet another proof that intelligence plus stone lore may be one of the most broken combinations i in got the you game. terry so i got you terry you're teaching us about how stone lore is useless and aha it comes back it's useful here yeah so chapter five is a short chapter the section opens with a bunch of ancestor spirits which are kind of interesting and i like the idea that they, you could have mage ancestor spirits that could really confuse the cosmology to be like oh but i thought we're mages and we reincarnated then what's this thing i'm talking to this raises some uncomfortable questions when I thought I had a complete understanding of the cosmology of the game. Uh, but after that, we get Chimmerlings, enigmatic spirits, and we get pound for pound what to me is the best description in this book. And my one that I will just pick up and drop directly into a chronicle, I will introduce it in my next game. The players have no choice in the matter is Shiaflanax which is the three-faced entity that only one face is talking at a time and the other two are just echoing it and kind of shimmer and wave due to the resonance caused by the first one. And the history section is, Shiaflanax was the dream of the first dawn reflected on the cool waters of desire. Emerging from the waters in silent song, she struck the first music note ever to vibrate in the still morning air of the new world. Playing upon a three-stringed lute, she sent vibrations through the flushed air of the early sunrise laughing 
everything as she shattered the eternal stillness. The sea fell in love with her song and voice, and she fell in love with the deep stillness and unclouded reflection that the ocean provided her, but the sea could not speak. I love weird entities that have a logic to themselves that come from a time before time that doesn't fit neatly into categorization. I love the Zigraglar, which as a note, if I type Z-I-G in my phone, it auto-completes Zigraglar, which is problematic because I describe something as Zigraglar zagging. And this is an entity that to me, like, it mentions that it's part of the dream zone, but to me, throw this in the high umbra. This is... Uh, yeah. There are a lot of entities in this book where it's like, blah, 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 mid umbral spirit. And you're like, this spirit is the reflection of the idea of war. I'm like, yeah, that's totally a middle umbral spirit, nerd. <laughs> and this was easily, hands down, one of my favorites. I don't even know what it does, but just that description it was great. And it has a loot and it makes fun of people. And it's got three heads. That was pretty cool. I, I remember reading through the description that I was thinking, it's like, well, this is a lot to drop on me. What, what, is, what does this do again? <laughs> but it's very interesting. Exactly. Somebody put their creative writing degree to work, and I'm super glad that they did. Yeah. Well, for my fit, um, soon after that spirit, there was a group of spirits called, I think it's pronounced Sakrana. And the Sakrana are basically uh, very large uh, praying mantis-looking uh, spirits, but they wear red flowing robes and they wear cardinal hats. And by this, I mean uh, cardinals in the Catholic, Holy Roman Catholic Church. And so it states in their description that there's some, something to do with religion or thoughts about religion, but, but it doesn't go any farther than that. And so this very interesting hint is there. And these uh, Sacrana Mantis spirits are living in the middle Umbra, but it says that uh, they may be refugees from dream realms uh, in the past, but they were pushed out. And they claim that they were pushed out by the uh, Ananasi, the, the were spiders of Werewolf the Apocalypse. And so it says that they have a very, I'm not going to say rivalry, but a, a very negative uh, relationship, hard feelings between the were spiders and the Sakrana for some reason. But it doesn't give you a lot of specifics there. So there's some creative space for a storyteller to make use of. Now, the Sakrana are not only very contrary and, and, and difficult to deal with, uh, which gives you some some ideas for possible uh, humorous uh, interactions in your game. Uh, not only do they vaguely hint at religions, but they also exist in these very interesting strongholds of their own. It, it, it says, picture a surrealist painting where everything is shifting and, and fading and in very odd and perhaps uh, disconcerting ways. But then as you move closer into their realm, you reach a large labyrinth. And within this labyrinth, there are puzzles to solve, there are chessboards, there are enigmas, the Sukrana themselves wait to confront the mages that enter, not in a hostile way, but in a, in a challenging way. Like you have to solve this puzzle before you're going to go any farther. And it, it hints about all these ancient secrets that they possess that they may be willing to trade for some other information or to reward to uh, uh, mages who can solve their puzzles. So, I mean, after reading this, I was like, oh, I've got so many ideas. Yeah. This, this is so cool. It's like, it's humorous, but it's mysterious at the same time. It's like, oh, who would not want to run with this ball? Yeah, and I like the line, they're very good at chess, but no one knows who taught it to them. And I'm like, mm-hmm, uh-huh, this is what I want from my inscrutable umbral entities. Yeah, this section is just full of great ideas. And as for an entity I would modify and drop into Mage, it's the Swarm of Envy. The, the story is that a spirit visited a pack and gave them a very great clave and then said, 
I will release this other thing. I'm not going to tell you what it is. And they say, on the next full moon, whoever has accomplished the greatest deed will get to have this clave that I gave to the, the leader of your pack. The, the thing that they released was the Swarm of Envy. And they talk about the double-edged sword of envy, where it can cause people to turn on each other, but it can also drive people to great acts. It's important to differentiate jealousy from envy. Envy is, I want what you have, and I'm willing to work for it, versus jealousy of, I want what you have, and I'm going to take it from you. Um, so I like the idea of a cabal in the Umbra that has fallen into winter, not realizing that they've been infested by a swarm of envy. And one of two things happens. The cabal has just fallen to internal bickering and politicking and fighting, or alternatively, this competition has led these mages to accomplish things that are well beyond what they thought they were able to do. And someone finds out that there's this swarm that is causing this effect that was attracted by their politicking, and they have to make the choice do we want to get rid of these entities and get along better, or do we want to keep them around because it's pushing us to do our best? And I like the idea that you can summon them by shouting a wall of abuse down an empty ravine until the echoes return the insults. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is, mm, Mage needs more of this. So that was the thing I would <laughs> modify and just drop in. And I like the idea that maybe characters summon these and release it into a technocratic stronghold that uh, maybe the New World Order, I feel, would be very likely to fall to this kind of political oh, infighting yeah. or, the, or the syndicate or something where people start sabotaging each other's projects to see who can get the most funding before quarterly review. And I thought that fit easily into mage and is a, a more subtle way that a group might be able to accomplish its goal. How about you, boss? Well, when I was looking for spirits that uh, seem to be written for, for were creatures, but adaptable, um, I looked at the deer of Kernunos and this is described as an angling, which is a type of spirit in the middle umbra that where creatures uh, believe serves a role ordained by guy long ago. The angling is supposed to appear. They hunt it down and kill it, and then they skin it and eat it. The were creatures believe they're supposed to do that. That's part of the natural cycle, and it's it's honoring the spirit to do that to it. Once they uh, skin it and eat it, they thank it properly in a, in an old ritual, and then um, after that, they gain uh, gnosis or or they gain uh, you know were creature spiritual energy, and they believe that the whole point of this spirit appearing was to pass that gnosis to the were creatures. Now, this doesn't apply directly to mage, but when I looked at this uh, deer of Kernunos, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I saw a very interesting possibility to adapt that. What I see is there could be this this lore, this knowledge that is known by either the dream speakers or, or the verbena or both. And that is that when the deer of Kernunos appears, the old gods or the spirit of the lands are sending it as a messenger to to shamans or to the uh, verbena. And so what they are supposed to do is to hunt the spirit down and catch it. And then uh, with a, a properly respectful ritual, they would kill it, they would clean it, they would prepare the body. And then after that, they would perhaps cook the bones over a fire and then study the pattern of cracks in the bone or 
study the entrails or, or something like that, but do some old world kind of traditional magic uh, rituals so that they would learn what is the threat that is coming to this place, this land in the future. This is like a, it would be an understanding, an old pact of how the spirits of the land or the the old gods communicate with mages. I would uh, adapt it in that way. And also, the uh, mages would gain quintessence from this, and they would believe that the old gods are giving this quintessence to them to prepare them for the difficult work that they have in the days ahead. I like the idea that that can be used for any number of ways, that a character is on a seeking or something that an avatar has said, and it's not a traditional seeking that's like, you'll gain wisdom when you can catch it. And you have all sorts of other kinds of these anglings that are released by effects or something that a character gets a bonus when they're able to track it down or particular wisdom is personified. Maybe a character is trying to find a particular tome that actually is actively running away from them and they will only gain the wisdom from it when they can find a way to trap this book that keeps running every time they go off after it. But the idea of an animated item that kind of literally embodies mages trying to track down and gain wisdom or knowledge, I think fits nicely and can be moved from uh, from werewolf. It takes a little bit more work as opposed to just giving Gnosis. And it's weird to me because if Gnosis represents wisdom, like I ate this deer so good, I now understand the I Chang better is kind of weird to me, but I've never quite, I've never quite made sense of Gnosis and werewolf yet. And despite actively playing the game, one day I hope to figure it out. Well, I was uh, hoping to uh, finish off this episode, uh, not with adventure ideas, but with uh, just a, a few ideas of the book in, in general and how this material uh, could, could be understood. First off, again, as we say at the beginning of the episode, uh, as written, most of the spirits in this book uh, have reasons to interact with were-creatures, but no particular reasons, at least none given, for interacting with mages. And so that's where a little bit of creativity can help a storyteller to adapt these to mages. But not a lot of creativity is required. There are a lot of good ideas in here. I was interested in the idea of spirits being in slumber. I, I guess I kind of had this assumption in the back of my mind that when the mages encounter a middle umber spirit, it's going to be awake and, and alert and, and either you know dealing with them in a friendly or, or hostile manner. But it suggests in this book that the spirit may be in slumber and that the mages may have to do something to properly bring it out of slumber. And uh, there are many suggestions for most of the spirits in this book for how a were-creature might bring the spirit out of slumber in a way appropriate for were-creatures. And a lot of those could be used by mages or just uh, changed a little to be more appropriate for, for mage factions. Yeah, I like the the differentiation between you have something like the jaggling, which might be the representation of all stags. And then you have the gaffling, which is a particular stag spirit, which serves the jaggling. So I, I liked that. That made sense to me now that I had seen it explained. And I like the idea of the the totems, which are, as you said, Gaius generals and different spirits pledge kind of allegiance to it and are protected by it and can expect service from other things. And I like the idea of characters maybe stumbling upon kind of a middle umbra web of intrigue. Yeah. And for those who are newer to mage, I thought this would be a good time to uh, give a bit more understanding on uh, bygones. Uh, bygones, of course, are magical creatures, uh, for example, a dragon or a griffin that lived on Earth in, you know, in the physical world long ago, but now they either hide very well 
or they've left Earth and gone into the Umbra or, or someplace else. And so it should be noted that Middle Umbra spirits have always been spirits. They started out as spirits in the Umbra going far back into time. Now, some of these spirits are very, very old. They have been around a long time. Many of them have been uh, connected to a particular place or area on the surface of the Earth for a very long time. And so these are not bygones. Um, now, some bygones long ago crossed into the middle or high umbra and spent a lot of time there, and they did not go into a, a specific realm or horizon realm inside the umbra. They just lived in the space between realms in the umbra. Now, these bygones would become spirits, and so even though they have become spirits, they're a little different from the spirits that have always been spirits. They will have more of a direct understanding and connection to life in the physical world, but then they won't have that deep knowledge of middle umbra politics and, and spirit lore that goes back thousands of years. And also, when a bygone leaves the Earth and goes into the Umbra, many of the bygones went to live in horizon realms created by mages or went to live in realms inside the Middle Umbra that were naturally occurring. Now, these bygones remain bygones. They keep their physical body. The griffin is still a griffin that has flesh and blood and, and bone and, and can be seen and heard and, and you can uh, write on the back of them. So if a bygone goes into a horizon realm or a realm, they remain a bygone. They have a physical body, and they should not be called spirits. And then you've got the bygones that exist, like, in the middle umbra between realms, and they become spirits. So this can be a little bit confusing, but hopefully I, I've brought a, a bit of clarity to this. Yeah, that's a good uh, explanation of the difference. And even early on, it talks about how nature spirits are different than paradox spirits, which I thought was interesting because they comment on how nature spirits are the come from the belief of Gaia and is the memory of the earth, and they do not generally change form, whereas paradox spirits take on the form of whatever mages expect, which is interesting because within mage lore, there are established paradox spirits, which makes you wonder, does Wrinkle look like Wrinkle because everyone expects Wrinkle to look a particular way, or does Wrinkle have an existence of its own? And it also brings up the question of, well, these cultural associations change over time and are informed by mortal belief. Are these creatures exempt from that? Does this mean that there's a portion of the consensus that mages might deal with that may be utterly devoid of human thought? I like the idea that one of the reasons you can still have vulgar magic if you're in the middle of a desert and there's no one within 200 miles in any direction is that the land has its own memory of what would be considered vulgar and what would be considered coincidental, which kind of chips away at one of the core ideas of mage, but it doesn't not make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it raises a bunch of interesting questions and it contradicts a bunch of things, but it wouldn't be a White Wolf book if it didn't at least disagree with two things that had previously been written. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. But uh, this book helped me to emphasize the differences between the Middle Umbra and the High Umbra. The High Umbra is very connected to humanity, human beliefs and thoughts and fears, etc. And so things are going to change over time. Things are going to appear differently. The spirits that you encounter there may have uh, descriptions written up in hermetic books. 500 years old and you read the descriptions like no doesn't look anything like this it has a different name now it's like yeah well things change in the high umbra because people change but in the middle umbra if you take the book as written and if you consider the werewolf the apocalypse game these spirits exist apart from 
humanity. They have less connection to humanity and what humans expect and believe, etc. And so these spirits are going to operate in the same way, have the same appearance and personalities and, and etc. over many, many hundreds of years. And what's interesting is the middle umbra is more closely connected with locations and places on Earth than the high umbra would be. And this is suggesting to me how I might, as a storyteller, use this in the game. If mages are dealing with uh, eternal questions or wrestling with concepts or aspects of society, then the High Umbra is the place to go. And of course, I love to do a lot of stuff with the High Umbra. But if they are trying to gain knowledge of plants or trees or or of a p particular mountain or valleys or animals or something, then the Middle Umbra is the place to go. And there's this interesting idea of talking with these spirits that have existed in the same form and done the same thing in the same place for countless centuries. And the, the knowledge that can be gained there is very different from the kind of knowledge a mage is going to get out of the High Umbra and High Umbra spirits. I guess my, my last key insight was the part where it talked about fetishes. And this is Fetish capital F. And it talks about binding a spirit into an object and using it. And the thing it brings up that I never really thought about before was it makes a note of one, you need a spirit that can actually be bound into an object. It can't be so big or so small that it wouldn't be able to survive the trip into the material world. And two, it actually has to be a charm that's useful to you. Like it actually has to have a charm or something that you could use wherever you're going with it. And I've had players who are like, oh, uh, I want my character to transform, be able to transform into a snake. So I need a snake fetish that'll help me do that. And the book's like, no, because you need to find a spirit that has a charm that turns people into snakes. You can't just use any old snake spirit. And I'm like, oh, okay. Maybe I am a bad DM. So uh, entry 137 into maybe Terry's not actually good at running this game. And this is why he does a podcast. So I'm like, oh, that's good. <laughs> so, so that was my, my last thing. Well, I mean, that may be a little too harsh, but yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I just wanted to, to finish off with the, the basic idea that uh, again and again in this book, uh, Axis Mundi, the book of spirits, it is emphasized that what uh, werewolves have to gain from dealing with the spirits is they can learn these gifts. And when you look at this, uh, the descriptions of the spirits, it says, okay, these are the gifts it can teach a werewolf. And so, hey, you know, I'm a mage fan. I'm reading through this book, and what about mages? And so uh, this, is, this would be my answer to that. With mages dealing with middle umbra spirits, there are a number of different benefits that they would gain. One is quintessence. Uh, and as a storyteller, you might want to say that a mage would need uh, low levels of prime and spirit knowledge to convert Gnosis into Quintessence, or you could just hand wave it and say, you know, Gnosis is as good as Quintessence here. Uh, but anyways, uh, other things are information, as I said earlier, um, a spirit that has existed in a particular forest for thousands of years can tell you a lot of, you know, deep old knowledge about that forest. And this is the kind of thing you're just not going to get in the High Umbra. If you, a mage establishes a relationship with the spirits of the land, then when the mage goes to that mountain or that valley, there may be, um, uh, lower difficulties for uh, sphere effects or for certain sphere effects. So that is a benefit there. Also, the blessings of spirits can be very useful. And uh, just a quick example to make this more concrete. Uh, let's say you have a hermetic who wants to go and deal with a uh, dream speaker chantry. And the hermetic shows up and the dream speaker says, you know, we, we've heard about your mentor. He was, he was an awful guy and we don't like hermetics anyways and we just don't like you and we're not going to let you in. Please go away. 
we're not going to help you. And the hermetic says, well, wait a minute here. I've been camping in this valley for weeks now, and I've gained the blessings of the spirits of the forest. And so uh, how about that? And then the dream speakers you know, kind of look into it and send, you know, do their sensing or their ritual or whatever. They say, this guy, this guy is blessed by the spirits of the forest. We have to acknowledge that. Oh, okay. Come on in. We're going to talk to you. I guess you're okay after all. So and these are concrete benefits that a mage can get, any sort of mage can get, if they're willing to take the time to deal with middle umber spirits. And, and last, of course, is favors. Can you rile up this uh, technocrat construct uh, so that I can you know, do something at the same time? Or uh, can you take this message along the moon path to a group of werewolves in a cairn far away? Or you know, There's different uh, favors that middle umber spirits can do for mages that high umber spirits would not be able to do or would not even understand at all. So middle umber can be used as a unique thing in your mage chronicles. And I think by far the most addi important addition we got to the canon of World of Darkness was the right of the pizza, which was the uh, right to again. <laughs> the bonar right to form a temporary pack where someone proves their capability as a leader by successfully negotiating how many pizzas their group needs and what the toppings are going to be. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I remember back in the day when I was reading the, the werewolf books, the, the Bone Nars added comic relief to werewolf again and again. <laughs> they, they were the funny guys. Well, yeah, which I certainly appreciated. I don't have anything more to say besides a quote. How about you, boss? I want to hear the quote and then I'll take us out. Gentle devices of restraint and voluntary submission are admired by storm crows. They like to submit to strength. Just as they enjoy watching others submit, leather bindings and instruments of gentle flogging are good examples. Feathers, black candles, and soft chanting also please them. From the lesser-known title of this, Fifty Shades of Werewolf the Apocalypse. So, there's a lot to take from this book, even if you didn't expect it. Go read it. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. And, and yes, uh, to wrap up, uh, we, we do recommend the book, even though it was written um, not only for Werewolf the Apocalypse, but specifically for werewolves. There is a lot of gold in here. Uh, some of it is good as is, some of it takes a little bit of adaptation, but uh, I think you'll enjoy what you can get out of this. Mm -hmm. So just to, to wrap up, if you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review for Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible for other people's searches. You can follow us on Twitter, at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there and see the complete show notes. This episode is thanks to executive producers Ira Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, and Michael Parker. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep producing episodes. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening, and until next time, truth until paradox, baby. Bye. <laughs>